Brothers and sisters, today, in order to shed a little bit of light on this feast of Corpus Christi, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus that we celebrate in the Mass, and to shed a little bit of light on why it is that we would do something like incense an altar, wear something golden, or chant a gospel, I want to tell you two stories. The first is a true story. It's about what I do when I go into the Catholic schools. Here in Muncie, we have two wonderful Catholic schools that are about to become one even more wonderful Catholic school in St. Michael Catholic School. And when I was in my past assignment in Lafayette, we were very blessed and gifted with Catholic schools there as well. And whenever I would go into the classrooms, there was a certain expectation. The priest is coming. So I had to figure out what I was going to do. And my plan, which was a multifaceted plan, was to make sure that every time I went into the classroom, in our elementary school age kids, I read a story to them. And I did that for multiple reasons. Uh, First and foremost, between you and me, was so that I didn't have to plan a lesson plan every single week, because I don't know how you do that when you only go in one day a week. I'm not a teacher. Uh, The second was I wanted to make sure that when they had an experience with the priest in the school, it was a positive one. It was something they could look forward to, something where they could say, oh good, Father's back. I hope he brought the book. And third, through picking stories very particularly, I was sort of smuggling faith into the hearts and the imaginations of our children. I read to them from the Narnia series, Uh, especially this year, I read to them from the Narnia series. If you've not heard of it, it's written by C.S. Lewis. The most popular of the books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's uh, been made into a full-length motion picture. But there are seven, six, seven, seven, thank you, someone's a Lewis fan out there, books in the series. And the first chronologically in telling the story is called The Magician's Nephew. This is the one that I was reading this year to the kids. In that story, a little boy and a little girl, Diggory and Polly, both find themselves transported out of the lives that they knew into a miraculous world. Now it starts out, and when they get into that world, there's really nothing remarkable about it. As a matter of fact, it's completely void. It's empty. It's dark. So dark that They wonder if maybe they've died. All of a sudden, as they sit there in the darkness, Polly and Diggory, the little girl and the little boy, and their mean old Uncle Andrew, who somehow accidentally got transported off with them, sit and, and listen, and they listen hard. Because as it was in the blackness, it seemed like there was nothing, that they had no senses, until they heard something. It was very soft at first, but it grew and grew to the point where it almost embraced them. It was a song in a deep bass voice. And all of a sudden, with this song came a light. And with this light, many other lights, pinpoints, pricks, stars. And they added voices into the music as the music carried on with 
the rich baritone, the high soprano, the, uh, the melody that continued to move through the ears and the souls of these children and their mean old uncle, things started springing up, almost as if the music was creating a world in front of them. At first they saw shadows, hills, contours. Then they saw things springing up from them. Grass, trees, flowers, fruits, animals. It was as if they were seeing the beginning of the creation of the world. And these kids in the story, much like the kids in our schools when I read the book, were amazed. <laughs> they were amazed. Their eyes opened wide. They say, wow, an elephant springing up from the ground like a small avalanche of mud coming up off of a hill. They're amazed. Their eyes are wide with wonder and with awe. The children in the story remark at how beautiful it is, at how amazing it is that they get to see something like this. But not their mean old Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew sees all of this happen, and at first, he's terrified. As maybe you would be if you saw complete darkness erupt into wild animals and things that you couldn't understand or explain. And he goes from terror to greed when he sees a small piece of metal from our world that was cast off into this new world spring up into a brand new young lamppost. It was as if this world could take anything and make more of it and make it fast. Then he saw an opportunity to make some money. Imagine if I could bring pieces of military outfits here, what we couldn't grow out of the ground, how we wouldn't become the biggest superpower in the world and I could sell it all to the highest bidder. He saw this world from a very different standpoint from the little, the little children, from Diggory and Polly. In the midst of describing this scene, the author, C.S. Lewis, gives a little commentary to the adults who might be reading it to their kids. And he says, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. The children who witness that miracle and the children in our schools witness things with a certain expectation, a certain holy innocence that expects to be amazed, to be wonderful, full of wonder. They expect a promise and a satisfaction to the promise because the world is an amazing place. But slowly, over time, it seems as if we have that beaten out of us. Slowly, over time, we become a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more efficient, a little bit more professional. And while there's nothing wrong with these things on their own, what we see happen is we become less like Diggory and Polly, and more like Uncle Andrew, unable to see something enchanted. This world, my brothers and sisters, is an enchanted world.
When I say that, I don't mean to imply some sort of magic, some sort of, uh, you know, reading cards or a crystal ball. No, that would be something Uncle Andrew would do out of greed for manipulation and power, knowledge. He might try to use the forces of nature to conjure something. But enchantment actually implies a profound sense of meaning that below the crusty skin of this earth lies a purpose and a fulfillment that you have actually been looking for your whole life. That underneath the surface, the roots of meaning stretch deep into the earth and into your heart. That what we might see as a veneer actually implies something eternal, something you long for. And oftentimes we don't see it. Oftentimes, because what you see and hear depends a good deal on what, where you're standing, we find that we're standing in the wrong spot. And on this, the feast day of Corpus Christi, the body and blood, the soul and the divinity of Christ, it's important that we stand firm in the right spot to be able to see what is real. Y'all, what is real? What matters, actually matters to you personally, to your life, to your destiny, to tomorrow? Because it does, and you do. Now, I promised you two stories. We heard a little bit about Narnia and the schools. The second story I want to tell you is also a true story, and it's a piece of history. In the 900s AD, a pagan prince from Russia named Vladimir sent emissaries to Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire. And he did this in order to figure out what this Roman Empire was about. Were they worthy to be able to be trade partners? Would they be advantageous political allies? Could we use them in wartime? He sent emissaries into this city to be able to scope it out and to be able to bring something back to Russia. Well, they saw many things, but the one thing that they brought back to their prince was this. They recorded that they went into the great church Hagia Sophia, the place where the Christians worshipped their God, and they said, we knew not whether we were in heaven or earth. For on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We know only that there God dwells among men. Brothers and sisters, here, God dwells among men. And this is the great enchantment of our world. You may look around and say, well, Father, this is not an enchanted place. This is no Narnia. This is no Constantinople. This is Muncie. You hear the train whistle at 3 a.m. and see the grease off of the road. This place is not enchanted. 
And if that's what you say, then my response to you is, are you so sure? Are you so sure that this place does not hold the same promise of a Narnia, of a Constantinople, of a Jerusalem? Here, God dwells among men. And so often we forget because we don't see it, because we're standing in the wrong place. We are disenchanted individuals living in an enchanted world. Uh, and so in our liturgy, in our mass, where Jesus himself corporally is represented and present on the altar, we try to do things to shake us a little bit, to wake up, because this is the reality that you were made for. And maybe, just maybe, if we sing a little something, smoke a little something, wear a little something, all of the sudden, our eyes might be opened and we might remember the longing and the holy innocence we once had to be able to be filled with something amazing, something wonderful, full of wonder, to sit and be in awe and just say, Wow. My friends, this is such a place. This is a place of wonder. You were made for this sort of enchantment. Because here on this altar, in just a moment, underneath the crusty surface, underneath the veneer, the roots of meaning stretch deep. And God himself will come among you to recreate as he created in the beginning, to fill you with that longing, to whisper promises into your ear about how things might be, and to fulfill them. This is a place of wonder. This is a place of enchantment. Amen.